Got a moment? Fast-changing risks affect people, businesses and economies in today's turbulent world. Perils like cybersecurity, political violence or threats to financial institutions. Listen in as Mosaic Insurance Specialists quiz fellow experts on trending industry topics. Welcome to this Mosaic Moment. Hi, I'm Finn McWork, Head of Political Risk for Mosaic Insurance. Today I'm speaking to Martin Bloom, Head of Desk Strategy and Capital Markets Development for Raiffeisen Bank International. RBI is a leading corporate retail and investment bank in Central and Eastern Europe with subsidiaries in 13 countries. Thanks for joining me, Martin. Uh, Martin and I have known each other for many years. We have a shared professional interest in keeping up to date and analyzing macroeconomic developments, but we come at that subject with very different perspectives and with a very different level of focus. As a political risk underwriter, I'm required to stay abreast of macroeconomic developments as they affect developing markets uh, around the world, whereas Martin is uh, a focused expert on Central and Eastern Europe and developing political and economic risks there. Uh, obviously, uh, one of the big issues facing political risk underwriters at the moment is the conflict in Ukraine. And uh, from on the human level, that is almost unfathomable in terms of the level of suffering. It's, uh, it's a huge tragic event uh, that is still uh, emerging. But the, the conflict also has considerable effects on economies around the world. Um, from my teams and my following of those effects around the world, I think we've been a little surprised by the focus being almost as much on countries that are geographically far away from the epicenter, uh, rather than what you might describe as the near abroad. But nevertheless, we are asked to support clients who are doing business in Central Asia and Central and Eastern Europe. So it, it requires us to stay abreast of those developments and try and analyze those risks. Uh, Martin, from your point of view, has sufficient time now passed to get an idea about uh, the effects of that conflict uh, in terms of remittances and energy prices on those economies in the near abroad? Or do you think that that story is still too rapidly evolving to come to a firm view? Thanks, Finn. Um, I think the simple answers are, are yes and yes. Um, so there's been certainly enough time to uh, appraise the initial impact uh, on the region's um, economies and markets. But by the same token, clearly the situation is still evolving uh, on the ground, uh, not only in terms of the human tragedy of the conflict, uh, but also in terms of its uh, spillover uh, to um, uh, economies in the region. Uh, and the sanctions response uh, is, is also playing out uh, still uh, too. Um, so in this context, um, we've, we've by no means seen the, uh, the full impact on Central European or Central Asian economies yet. Um, but um, we, we can say um, a couple of things um, uh, already if we, if we look back over the last uh, four uh, months. And the first point I'd touch on there is that higher energy prices have obviously had a profound impact uh, on both the sea region's uh, external imbalances uh, and also obviously inflation too. And what that means in practice is that the um, the current account deficits in, in the uh, CE region have widened in, 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 in some cases to levels not seen uh, since before the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. Um, and by the same token, 
uh, higher energy prices have also been one of the key factors pushing inflation in many countries in the region uh, above uh, 10%. And I think, you know, from a from a, an immediate um, spillover impact from Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, the, the, the inflation impact is, is perhaps the most visible. Uh, and that in turn creates a real challenge for, for policymakers, uh, not only in the US or the Eurozone, uh, but also in the uh, CE and Central Asian region, uh, region too. Um, and the positive, uh, particularly from a sovereign uh, risk perspective, is that central banks across the region have really stepped up to the challenge, have significantly tightened uh, monetary policy, and in turn, uh, that's something which I think you know is um, underpinning uh, the the medium term credibility uh, of policymakers uh, across. Uh, the region. And it's also worth noting uh, that the the National Bank of Ukraine, so Ukraine Central Bank, recently also uh, tightened uh, monetary policy, hiking interest rates 15% to 25% in a bid uh, to reduce uh, foreign exchange pressure. And that's important um, for two reasons. One, because obviously uh, it reduces the uh, scope for further international reserves loss, which is good. Uh, for sovereign creditworthiness, and also because it underscores that notwithstanding the conflict, uh, that policymakers still have to do uh, relatively orthodox things in terms of policy choices, and that's exactly what's happening in Ukraine too, uh, which is ultimately uh, positive. The second um, point uh, I'd make uh, in terms of the immediate spillover of of the conflict uh, to to the region. Is that the the impact on economic activity has so far been somewhat more muted uh, than feared, and that's also true for for Central Asia and and the Caucasus. Um, and what we've seen in terms of inward uh, remittances um, has been quite surprising, in insofar as that flows from March onwards have been actually stronger uh, than than previously. So they've accelerated rather than decelerated, and that's that's been very very visible, for example, in uh, Uzbekistan. And the second uh, point, which is, I think, to some extent uh, related to the first, is that FX depreciation pressure across Central Asia has also been been quite limited and and reversed quite fast following the initial uh, weakening of currencies in Central Asia. And the reason for that was also because the ruble uh, has been surprisingly strong since sanctions were imposed too. So in short, the initial impact of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been relatively muted uh, in terms of economic activity outside of Ukraine, um, of course. But we do think that uh, headwinds to economic activity will progressively intensify as we move into the second half of this year, particularly if um, energy price pressure sustains. Uh, thank you. And you, you've already sort of touched on uh, Ukraine's own actions in trying to manage the economic fallout of the crisis. I guess uh, from our point of view, uh, we have seen in Britain quite a strong reaction just from British people in looking to, to help Ukraine through the crisis. And perhaps partly because of that, the British government has been visible in offering significant tangible help to Ukraine. Uh, But more broadly and more significantly, uh, from the international community, there has been significant help offered, particularly from international financial institutions. I would say from a political risk underwriter's point of view, it, it would be nigh on impossible for us to increase our exposure to Ukraine at the moment. 
but the level of international support has profound implications on our existing exposures that we ran up from previously supporting the Ukrainian economy. From our point of view, that level of international support uh, signifies a strong ongoing commitment to the future of Ukraine. Uh, but is that also how you're seeing it? That's absolutely um, right. And I think um, it's really uh, difficult to, to overstate the importance or to understate the importance of uh, international support for the Ukrainian um, economy. The, the US uh, obviously came up recently with a, a $40 billion uh, aid package of which around $8 billion will be channeled in direct budget support for the Ukrainian government. The European uh, Commission uh, has proposed a 9 billion euro uh, macro financial uh, assistance package for Ukraine too for this year, which also would directly support um, uh, Ukraine's uh, government and hence also the the uh, economy. And that's obviously in addition to support from supranationals, the IMF, the EIB, the World Bank, and also a lot of um, bilateral um, support. And this is really, really important um, because... Obviously, the the, uh, the budgetary and the fiscal impact of the war is is significant. Uh, the finance ministry estimates uh, around five billion dollars a month of, of, of deficit uh, related to the um, the impact of the war uh, on the budget and the economy, um, and that gap needs to be uh, plugged. And if it's not plugged um, by um, international support, uh, it is it needs to be plugged by domestic bond sales, which is occurring uh, on a weekly basis every Tuesday. Uh, but in addition, uh, if there's gaps, then the central bank um, has to directly finance the government, which from a longer term perspective, the lower that is, uh, the better it will be for Ukrainian markets and the exchange rate uh, when markets reopen again at some point in the future. Um, and two related points. Um, are also very important to to highlight uh, in this context. And, and if you speak to uh, people in Ukraine's finance ministry, um, which I have in the last few months, these are points which which strongly come across. The first one is that grants uh, from the international community are, um, are preferred uh, as opposed to concessional loans because obviously grants do not add to the country's debt, so it's better for, for long-term uh, creditworthiness. Um, and, and the second point uh, from a from a medium-term perspective is how best to facilitate private sector participation uh, in Ukraine's uh, reconstruction. And this is obviously a crucial uh, point uh, insofar as this will define uh, the welfare of Ukraine citizens uh, in the long term. And it cannot only be done by uh, international bodies. The private sector progressively will have to um, uh, become uh, involved and th there will be an element there, I think, of risk sharing. In terms of uh, the European response, we are seeing a lot of coverage on the European energy sanctions uh, being applied to Russia and particularly on the uneven pain that that represents for the member states of the EU. Uh, I wonder if you see that as a strain on uh, the cohesion of the EU and maybe a threat to the formation of a single coherent EU foreign policy. I, I view it. Um somewhat more uh, optimistically uh, than that. So sort of a mirror image to some extent um, of what you just um, asked. And specifically, I, I think if we if we take a step back and, and look at the six rounds of uh, sanctions that the uh, EU countries uh, have so far imposed against Russia, uh, it's, it proves that pretty uh, robust and pretty aggressive uh, EU foreign policy can and has um, 
worked and that the EU can, from a foreign policy perspective, act in concert with other large players such as the US or the UK. And, and that's despite having to make compromises to placate countries such as Hungary. Also keep in mind um, that the EU, um, in, in the context of uh, trying to offset or work against some of the country's specific spillovers from their uh, energy um, price implications from sanctions, the EU has a, an initiative called Repower EU. And part of that provides up to 225 billion euros of funding to facilitate uh, the energy transition and essentially to improve energy uh, security uh, in, in the region. So taken together, on balance, the EU's actions in the last four months strengthen uh, my belief in a common EU uh, foreign policy. Well, thank you very much, Martin, for your time and your thoughts in this conversation. I know we'll be very carefully monitoring events as they continue to unfold. So thank you very much. Thanks, Finn and uh, Mosaic for inviting me today. Thanks for listening. Feel free to download, follow and share on social and recommend us to colleagues and clients. See you here next time for another Mosaic Moment. Mosaic Moment.